1: The most important thing that I've learned is that one of the biggest myths in Silicon Valley and around innovation is that it's about a single solitary inventor coming down from the mountaintop with the genius idea.
2: It's absolute baloney. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire
0: Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. We're here to bring you fascinating stories from
2: innovative and pioneering women around the globe. Our aim is to uncover the human behind the success story to show that these women aren't so different from you or I. They're achieving great things despite their doubts, fears and tough times.
0: Don't forget to look out for our special how-to episodes as well. This is where Claire and I unpick some of the common career pain
2: point themes our guests have raised. Now to this week's show. Hello and welcome to this episode of Don't Stop Us Now. Greta and I are super excited to share this conversation with Courtney Hone. Courtney has a job and a job title that many of us would kill for. She's the storyteller for Moonshots at X, the Moonshot Factory, Google's world-renowned innovation subsidiary known for self-driving cars, internet balloons, smart contact lenses, to name but a few. It's her job to ensure X's extraordinary ideas have the best chance of success and impact in the outside world. With some people, it's an exaggeration, but in this case, It's an absolute fact that this is literally world-changing work. You're so right, Claire.
0: And we had such a great conversation with Courtney that both Claire and I think you'll be fascinated by her insider view of innovation in Silicon Valley and at X, how Courtney thinks about leadership and taking opportunities, and how she still feels imposter syndrome even today, but has found a way through it, which we'll hear all about. Courtney's been with Google for 12 years and has worked in Asia, Australia, and of course, Mountain View in California, where she's based now. Please enjoy this discussion with the amazing and energetic Courtney Hone. Courtney,
2: welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. We've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time because we you know, we know how much of an interesting perspective that you have working at X. And indeed, your job title, let's start there, storyteller for X, the moonshot factory. I mean, that must be the best job title we've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> So how exactly do you describe what you actually do to somebody that you first met?
1: It does take a little bit of explaining. So first of all, what's a moonshot factory? So X used to be part of Google. Uh, We were originally known as Google X and we were the far out crazy lab where we worked on technologies that sounded just really sci-fi and weird and out there. And so my job within the moonshot factory was to help those slightly wacky, crazy, stranger-than-fiction sort of technologies uh, make contact with the real world and the general public in a way that makes people say, wow, cool, I'm glad you're working on that, rather than being a little bit scared of whatever it was we were working on. But if I had to fit myself into a conventional business job title, I would describe it as marketing, communications, and public affairs.
2: How
0: does X actually go about coming up with the ideas and the problems it's actually going to spend its time on.
1: That was something we had to give a lot of thought to, particularly in the early days of X when we were actually part of Google. We were Google X. And we already had thousands of really smart technologists working on the big problems that Google was working on. And so we had to figure out what was going to make X unique. And so we came up with a blueprint that is essentially three circles in a in a Venn diagram. And the three circles are, one, we have to be working on a huge problem in the world, something that affects millions or billions of people. Secondly, we need to propose a radical approach to solving that problem, something that just breaks you away from preconceptions and like, okay, that's gonna cut through and make a difference in a way that conventional solutions won't. And then thirdly, there needs to be a breakthrough technology, a piece of technology that exists today that we can use to actually build that radical approach and solve that huge world problem. And the iconic X moonshot that really captures uh, the spirit of those three circles nicely is self-driving cars. The huge problem that we're trying to solve there is the fact that 1.2 million people die on roads around the world every year. And that problem's only getting worse as people are distracted by their phones and just simply aren't paying attention. So the huge problem is pretty you know, obvious and visceral. Secondly, the radical approach, well, a car that can drive itself. Now that our cars now called Waymo are out driving without drivers every day, it seems like no big deal. But in 2009, when we announced that we were working on this, that just sounded like insanity. And then lastly, the breakthrough technology that allowed us to to do this was bringing together really smart software and suites of sensors that could see all around the cars. Those technologies were just starting to get capable enough to make self-driving cars actually possible. So those three circles are surprisingly difficult to fulfill, but it still gives us enough room to reach far out into the universe to, to find really important problems to solve.
0: You've really been in the box seat, Courtney, for observing and being a part of some of the world's greatest innovation and pioneering ideas in our decade anyway. What have you learned about the process of innovation?
1: The most important thing that I've learned is that one of the biggest myths in Silicon Valley and around innovation is that it's about a single solitary inventor coming down from the mountaintop with the genius idea. <laughs> it's absolute baloney. Maybe the biggest piece of baloney is that mythical figure is almost always a guy. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> come so on, true. Like,
1: doesn't have to be that way, isn't that way. But the other reason that's a myth is that innovation is a team sport. It's So, so rarely the one person with the the final idea. Instead, it's groups of people grappling with something interesting, something hard, just trying to play around with it, build prototypes, go do research, have conversations, fill whiteboards full of scribbles. And it takes all types of people. It's certainly not always the technologist, the computer scientist. Those breakthrough moments are really this this scrum that happens over time and over lots of, lots of diverse voices, lots of hard work, lots of wrangling with a problem in various ways into it. And I guess the other thing I've, I've realized about this process is it's really long and ugly and undefined. A lot of times we read the you know beautiful article in in the media see the cover of fast company or the you know sunday new york times and you know see the sort of perfect story of this invention and this product that now is going to change people's lives and that often kind of polishes over and papers over the reality a big part of my job recently has been trying to explain just how ugly this process can be and that no one has the final perfect answer at the beginning of anything great you really just have to feel your way to it
0: i love that it's so refreshing to hear that this is not a glossy process and i think so many people as you say reading the articles think it's clean and it's lightning bolt stuff really refreshing
2: yeah absolutely so we've heard about the amazing world of x now courtney but what we'd love to do is find out a little bit more about you let's start at the beginning with your childhood if that's okay with you How would you describe your childhood?
1: Oh, my childhood was idyllic. I grew up in a a small town of about 5,000 people, about an hour outside of Boston, Massachusetts, a perfect New England seaside town. I had a wonderful family. My parents were teachers in the local community. My mom's family had been in that town for generations, and her whole family was, was all around us. So it was a really special place to grow up. And the, the main thing that I, I remember about my childhood beyond my family and, and also a, a lot of sportiness. We we grew up in a typical kind of Boston obsessive sports family and I played tennis and basketball. But I always had a pile of books with me everywhere I went, every little car ride, even just to the shop with my mom to get, get some milk. I always was carrying around some books. I felt like even though my own personal travel radius was really quite small. My mind was always many miles or many centuries away in all sorts of different adventures and, and cultures, and that really, I think, shaped me from an early age.
2: Yeah, wow. So the, the books were the the inspiration for you to start exploring the world. That's it. I know that you started down the route of being a teacher like your mum, but then that didn't actually last too long. What, what happened?
1: It's interesting. I couldn't have put my finger on it back then. I loved teaching. So when I first left university, I took a job as a high school English teacher in California, a state I had never visited Pitched up and taught for a couple of years of high school English, and I also coached the girls' tennis team and the girls' basketball team. And I absolutely loved it. the The relationships that I formed with you know, those eighty kids that year, and seeing them grow over the course of a school year, and seeing how I could could really help them develop as people and as as writers and as you know appreciators of of literature and culture. I, there was something missing, and it was only much much later really, once I got to Google, that I was able to go back and say, what I wanted was to be able to scale my impact. I was working really hard to help 80 kids. But if I was going to work that hard, why couldn't I help eight thousand or eight million or you know, I I wanted to be able to to kind of it have a greater impact. And that's something I find really, really satisfying in all the years that I've spent at Google and, and now at X, that everything I work on, every hour I spend, I I know that it's gonna be kind of channeled to, to a lot of different minds and hopefully inspire and educate lots of different people that way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But it is quite a an interesting concept for an early twenties teacher to have. What was it that really motivated you to want to make a difference, at, you know, at a larger scale than than being a teacher?
1: It's hard to say. I I think at the time I I probably wouldn't have identified myself as you know particularly mission driven in any way. At that age, I think I was just following these funny little instincts that I had that there was still something more to discover. And of course, at age 23, there was loads more to discover, but you had to kind of take it step by step. The instinct that I had at that stage was, okay, the, the next baby step I could take could be moving from where I, where I was physically at the time, which was in Monterey, California, which is a you know, lovely kind of holiday peninsula on the Pacific coast. I could move from that small environment up to the big smoke. So San Francisco and Silicon Valley was about two, two and a half hour drive away. And at the time, the dot-com boom (laughs) was in full swing. Pets.com, toys.com, all those early wave web companies I just started applying for jobs in the Bay Area, including teaching jobs. Uh, I figured, well, maybe I could do the geographic jump, then the professional jump, but ended up uh, talking my way into a public relations agency, and they took a chance on an unknown kid, and that was the launch of a career in communications.
0: And that dot-com boom, for anyone who's too young to know, was the late 90s, in particular 98, 99, and then it kind of crashed around early 2000 for memory, Yeah.
1: That's right. And in fact, I started my job I think July 5th 2000. So the the cracks uh, had already started to show. There were still plenty of parties happening. I went to rooftop sushi parties and, you know, water view, you know, condos with gorgeous free flowing wine, the likes of which I had never seen. And, you know, the media companies had, they were publishing phone book sized magazines powered by advertising, powered by all the venture capital money that was going into all these tech companies. But the cracks were just starting to to show. But I I was glad I got there for at least a little bit of the good times.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it sounds sounds to me as if you're the kind of person who likes to put yourself into situations that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. You know, most people would, being in a lovely seaside town in Boston and then going to a beautiful place in Monterey and teaching kids and enjoying it, most people would stay there. But it sounds like you've got this itch to actually keep putting yourself into situations that stretch you. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and it's funny. I don't know where that came from. I just have always had it. I've always had a little antenna that goes up at a certain point that I feel like, okay, this is getting a little same-same. Maybe I I could learn and grow a little bit more if I did something a little different. I've never been one to do the grand gesture or the grand sudden, like, I'm going to change it all up. It's more the little antenna would go up. And then for the next period of time, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years, I would just be listening and kind of taking opportunities to maybe meet someone new who worked in a field that I was interested in or take a chance to take maybe a little bit of a vacation to check out something new to see how I felt about it. And often that open-mindedness would lead to an opportunity. And because I had spent that time just kind of softly exploring it and being open to it, it didn't feel dramatic. It just felt like, yep, okay, let's go do this. This is the thing to do.
0: What's a time in your career where you felt scared or fearful? And can you tell us how you, you, know, you felt at the time?
1: The biggest, oh my gosh, I, I'm really going to do this moment, came when I had an opportunity to move to Asia with Google. I had been at Google for maybe three years at that point. So it was like late 2008. And my manager came into our one-on-one meeting one week and said, oh, hey, do you want to move to Asia? (laughs) And I said, "Um, sure. (laughs) Uh, Why? why? (laughs) What country? And he said, oh, I don't know what country. But Google's really growing its business in Asia and starting to establish an Asia-Pacific headquarters. And they don't know what country it's going to be in. But we need people to go out there and, and build a communications team. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I had at that stage of my career, I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley around that time were starting to talk about the rise of Asia and the activity out there. And so like my little antenna had already said to me, you need to get some Asia experience just to see what it's like. But I thought that would come in the form of a project where I would get to go out there for a couple of weeks. And instead, they were asking me to move my life halfway around the world. And I went home and asked my husband what he thought of the idea. And he he looked at me and he said, you've already made up your mind to go, haven't you? And I swear I hadn't. Honestly, I wouldn't have gone without him if he had said, no, there's no way I would have gone. But he was up for the, up for the challenge. And I, I realized that my heart had already kind of leapt at this cool new thing that would have given me a chance to just really test myself and it did coming back to your question i landed in asia not knowing anything about this collection of countries which most multinationals try to treat like a region but is really more of a geographic accident and i just had no idea what i what value this little american girl was going to bring to supporting a team that was full of people who knew their countries and cultures, obviously better than I would, but also had 10 and 20 years more professional experience at that stage than I did. And I found that incredibly intimidating and unsettling.
0: I imagine so. And I mean, what kind of self-talk were you saying to yourself at that point in time?
1: Oh, gosh. At first, I just felt so lonely and it was really tempting to wallow. I also had arrived at the Maybe not the bottom of the global financial crisis, but the GFC was was well underway. We had been promised travel budget and headcount, and we had nothing. And so we landed in, in a region that it's well known that you have to go and show up and be with people, and you have to go out to eat and spend quality time building those relationships before you can get anything done. That's true anywhere in the world, but it was, it's particularly true in a lot of these countries in Asia. And I was just sitting there, little old me, with a telephone and maybe a video conference system in Singapore, trying to figure out what the heck to do. So at first, it was like, oh, God, I don't know how to do this. And then I realized, well, I'm just going to have to find some way to be useful. So I started looking for moments where the existing communications team in in different countries was definitely going to need extra hands. Nobody had enough help they all were going to have a big announcement or a big crisis at some point where having extra even English speaking hands on deck was going to be useful or even just someone who could call headquarters in Mountain View to get a gut check on something or get some strategic guidance. And so I just gravitated toward those moments. The first one I found was actually for the launch of Google Music in China. This was, I think, in early 2009 and it was big strategic play for Google to be able to compete with the local Chinese search engine and portals. And I remember showing up at this warehouse in uh, the outskirts of Beijing, because we were going to put on a press conference that included performances from Taiwanese pop stars. And I just thought, how did I get here? (laughs) But it worked. (laughs) I was able to show them that I could actually be useful. And then from there, more, more and more teams started asking for my help. And eventually, I got to be useful. And over time, I realized probably one of the most profound things in my professional career, which was the opportunity to be a leader sometimes sneaks up on you. Leadership is often, maybe more often than not, an accumulation of smaller moments where you just jumped in, rose to the occasion, found a way to be useful. It's perhaps less often a big signal dramatic moment where you get to like, be in the war room and be in with the really big executives. That's not to say that doesn't happen, but I think most commonly, especially earlier in your career and maybe especially at bigger companies, you kind of find your way onto the radar and onto the like big stages Just by being ready to be useful. I've never really forgotten that, that I can always just lean in and be helpful. And that's going to make somebody else's life easier. That's going to create a lot of value for the company. If you're working on the right teams and in the right companies, like that over time should get rewarded.
0: I love that. I love that. Courtney, what about, you know, sort of your beliefs about work or what success means? Have any of your beliefs, have you found in hindsight, limited you and how far you could go?
1: Growing up on the east coast of the, the United States, I do think I internalized a fair number of notions of conventional success. I grew up in a family of teachers. I went to Harvard where the paths are medicine, law, consulting, and you know, maybe academia. I think for a long time I defined success in those kind of conventional professional ways. And over time, I think I've broadened it out. I mean, I I have ended up succeeding in a conventional corporate path, but I myself have come to define my success more in finding a collision between my passions and my abilities. When I'm spending time doing work that I'm passionate about, working on problems that I care a lot about with people I care a lot about, and it taps into the things that I'm good at, it doesn't feel like work. I go home at the end of the day really energized. And the fact that I get paid well to do it is just,
0: wow, that's incredible. Do you think you're more gutsy than the average female at work? No, I I
1: suffer from imposter syndrome probably more than anyone around me would guess. In fact, I've started telling people that look I have imposter syndrome too because Love that. I yeah, because I, I found a way through it. I think a lot of women feel like they're not ready yet. In fact I think a lot of women late twenties, thirties, they they start to see what's happening in the big rooms, the big decisions, the big business stuff. And I think they they start to think, oh, wow, that's so complicated because so many women are very nuanced thinkers, very strategic thinkers. They're deeply sensitized to the complex web of relationships and kind of personal interactions that's a part of any business. And I think they see that complexity and they think, I'm not ready yet. I think men tend to just go, I'm going in. I'm going all in. It's my time. And I think women are like, oh, it's not my time yet. That is so and, true. Yeah. And I just really want to and try to encourage women to say, why can't it be your time now? You're just as likely to have an answer or a useful perspective as anyone else in that room. The fact that you've gotten that close and can see that complexity means you deserve to be in there. You deserve that seat at the table. Go ahead in. And it's just a wonderful gift also to be in those rooms Before you have to be the head decision maker in those rooms, like just getting to be in there and see what it's like builds confidence that suddenly demystifies it. And then you can gain strength and confidence from that.
0: Totally. And, you know, I just have to add to that because it's something that we're both so passionate about, you know, this sense that women often go, oh, I'm not ready yet. And yet what we found in the research that and the data that we've uncovered is that women's ability to judge their capabilities shows time and time again that we are much harsher self critics and we're not accurate when we judge our abilities. We are nearly always discounting ourselves and that makes such a difference. And so if we can just relax and go, yeah, as you say, just give it a go. Why not be ready now? What, you know, what's the worst can, that can happen? So really passionate about that.
1: That rings so true for me. I wish I had had more women around me when I was going through that phase of my career to say, no, no, just get in there. I I did some of it myself, but I actually think I lost a lot of time and energy kind of ruminating and worrying Whereas if I had had someone near me to kind of coach me through that and be like, Nah, you'll be fine. Like you're fine. You're doing everything you need. It would have eased my path quite a bit.
2: Yeah. And so when you do get imposter syndrome, which I actually think is as you go up through an organization, it becomes even more prevalent. What do you say to yourself?
1: I say to myself what I now say to to a lot of people on my team, which is fake it till you make it. (laughs) I realize that everyone is just doing the best they can every day. No one has the answer all the time. What we don't see is the hidden work that we're all doing to go get some experience, get some expertise, talk to someone who has the answers. We're all just showing up as best we can. I think it's particularly tricky at a place like Google, which is now Alphabet, where you're surrounded by so many smart people. And in particular, the culture here is very quick and verbally oriented. It is kind of a classic American culture in the and maybe a classic engineering culture where people tend to want to solve a problem, a big hairy problem, by getting in a room and talking it out. So that rewards people who are super comfortable being very verbal and very comfortable just bashing a bunch of ideas around. But it doesn't reward people who want time to go away and reflect and collect their thoughts, maybe do a little bit of research. And so I've tried to recognize that tendency in the teams I work with and try to create space for different styles of thinker and communicator to make sure that they have time to make their best contributions. Because I myself, I can bake it really well in a quick, fast-moving brainstorm, but I know myself, I do way better if I have time to go and reflect. So I, I really try to encourage that in myself and in my teams.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that's a, it's an interesting point because because the culture focuses on talking things out, There's this age-old thing around presence, isn't there? And how many, particularly women, tend to be told that they don't have a presence in a meeting because perhaps they aren't as confident or quick in an argument. How do you help people around you work through that?
1: That comes up a lot. First of all, I make sure that my teams write things down. I am a bit of a document fanatic. So that's one way I give people a foundation for a more confident presence, that people are looking at the same source of truth. I think a lot of people get unmoored when the ideas are just spinning, 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 and maybe people aren't even clear what the goals are, or even clear what they're really trying to solve. And then people who are uncomfortable just get quieter and quieter and quieter. So using tools like documents, meeting agendas, meeting notes to try to establish a common foundation. So that way, people who are quieter and a bit more reticent can get boosted by kind of the confidence of the single source of truth. And then people who are more comfortable just like verbally bashing things around, stay kind of channeled in a productive direction rather than spinning off into stuff that can be a distraction. And I also talk to people about their individual styles. One common uh, challenge I work with spokespeople on is they're trying to develop their presence. Most often, you know, in front of media or or up on a stage giving a a keynote somewhere is that they often will say, well, I want to give speeches like Barack Obama. And I'll often say, great for you to have a role model like that. He's an exceptional orator. There's a lot we can all learn about that. But you're not going to be Barack Obama. (laughs) He, He is who he is and you are who you are. And so I talk to people about how they can find the best expression of who they are. Someone on my team does not need to run a meeting the way I run a meeting or the way I can tell the story of X in the world. Everyone can find their own voice and way of being. It needs to start with what's authentic and true to them. And then meet the other people around them or meet the work environment sort of halfway.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, at X, I'm sure it's a pretty male-dominated environment. It's full of engineers, which unfortunately tends to be more male-dominated, although some women are coming up through STEM programs. What do you think is the unique value having women at the table in terms of innovation, particularly in your environment?
1: It's all about cognitive diversity. We care so deeply about cognitive diversity at X. Everyone around the table working on a particular problem has their own perspective to bring. Sometimes their perspective is fresh and different because of their gender. I am often the only woman in the room. Sometimes their perspective is fresh and different because they grew up in a different country. And so they don't see things the same way that an American would see them or the way someone from a Western culture would see them. Sometimes it's the particular path that they took through their professional career. You know, I did the, oh, I went to an Ivy League school and then got a series of fancy professional jobs, but not everyone's taken that path. And and at different points along the way, they've picked up fresh perspectives. And so we want all those perspectives at the table at X, especially when we're working on problems that affect millions and billions of people. We're not trying to just guess the needs of a tiny little demographic kind of key user niche. Like these are massive world issues that we need all the brains we can get.
2: Thank you so much, Courtney. This has been such an inspiring conversation. Now, I know that our listeners will probably want to find out more about you and more about X, it being such an exciting place. So where can they find out more about you?
1: Our website is at www.x.company. We also have a blog that that you can find there, which tells some of the -the behind-the-scenes stories of of moonshot taking. And if you like magazines, The Atlantic, a magazine here in the U.S., came inside the X secret lab last year and wrote a story called X and the Science of Radical Creativity. The journalist who wrote that story, Derek Thompson, did a phenomenal job trying to get inside our heads and figure out how we generate lots of of ideas and and our kind of audacity and try to translate that so that other people can learn from it as well.
2: Fantastic. Well, We'll make sure that we link to that article in our show notes. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much again. It's been fascinating to both get inside your head and to get this glimpse
0: into the pretty extraordinarily unique world that is X. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has reinforced the idea that making great and new things happen is all about taking action despite doubts, fears, or tough times. Don't forget, links and other useful info from today's show can be found at our website don'tstopusnow.co. And
2: if you've enjoyed and been inspired today, our request to you is please subscribe. And if you could make today the day that you take two minutes to rate and review this show, we will personally blow your air kisses, sing you a song and be eternally grateful. Finally, we'd love
0: to hear from you. Let us know who you'd like to hear in future on the show and what else we can do to make this unmissable for you. You can reach us at hello
2: at don'tstopusnow.co. So here's to being a little bit more unstoppable.